Father, we are utterly dependent on you to work by your Spirit as we hear your word. Please do open our ears, please uh, open our eyes, that we'd hear your truth, uh, that we'd see what's true about Jesus uh, as you speak uh, concerning him. And we do ask it through him. Amen. Unbelief which can't survive a collision with the truth is not worth any regrets. Unbelief which cannot survive collision with the truth is not worth any regrets. But unbelief seems to frequently survive the collision. Why does it survive? Why does unbelief survive collision with the truth? In this section, Mark shows us Herod and the Pharisees colliding with the truth and walking away unchanged. Whether you're curious and not yet committed, or whether you're committed and not yet perfect, I think you'll find it helpful to see the very different reasons why their unbelief survives collision with the truth. When you see why it survives in spite of the truth, I think it'll help you get beneath your own thoughts. It'll help you to chat with friends. We finished off last week with Jesus in his hometown. They they knew all about the mighty works that he'd done, but they rejected him. So picking up here, uh, chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus continued to teach among the villages. He expanded his influence. He sends out the 12 disciples. They took his message. Uh, he, He sent them with his authority over unclean spirits. He told them to leave everything, to leave everything that was not absolutely necessary. Which I think is to give us a a sense of the urgency with which he sent them. But also puts them in a position of dependence on those Jesus sent them to. They needed help. Verse 10, they needed a place to stay and they needed people to provide for them. Now, Jesus tells them if they're rejected, they're to shake the dust off their feet. Now, pious Jews would do that when they left an area where Gentiles lived. Uh, If they had to go somewhere on business, uh, as they left it, they would shake the dust off their feet saying, we're leaving behind the not God's people. Jesus' disciples shook the dust off their feet when they left behind people who refused to repent. Their actions, as they shook the dust off, it said very clearly, anyone who refuses Jesus' call to repentance, they're not God's people. The true people of God are those who repent. So verse 12, the sent disciples proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out demons, they healed the sick. And between what they're doing and what Jesus had already done, verse 14, news about Jesus' mighty works reaches King Herod. People are saying things like, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. Or they're saying Jesus is Elijah, or Jesus is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Then Herod says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, Mark mentioned uh, John the Baptist being arrested way back early in chapter 1. But now he tells us the story. He's waited till now. Uh, Herod Herod had uh, married his brother's wife. Uh, She divorced Philip to marry Herod. But Mark still calls her Philip's wife. And John the Baptist says it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. The divorce said Herodias was free to marry. 
But they had not separated what God had joined. Herodias was still married to her first husband. So verse 18, John the Baptist calls them to repentance. She's with you, but she's still your brother's wife, he says. You're breaking God's holy law. Now, it's not very surprising that Herodias was unimpressed. She just wanted John dead. And ordinarily, Herod would have have complied. He would have kept her happy. But he knew John was a righteous and holy man, so he did the obvious thing. He imprisoned him. He imprisoned him and kept him for entertainment purposes. Uh, Now, those details of the story can be told back in chapter 1, but Mark's waited to tell us now because it helps us with what he's going to show us about Jesus. Verse 20, Herod kept listening to John's straightforward call to uh, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, John's call to repentance, pretty straightforward, stop disobeying God. But Herod didn't. He didn't repent. So he's perplexed. He's puzzled by John. He heard him gladly. It's entertaining to hear a man in chains tell his king what to do. Intrigued and entertained, but unrepentant. Herod kept his pet preacher, kept him safe from his partner. Well, kept him safe until his birthday. In verse 21, he hosts a great feast to celebrate himself. Everyone who's anyone is there. Actually, only anyone who's anyone is there. Herod's niece dances to entertain Herod and his guests, which sounds seedy and may not be as seedy as it sounds. But in any case, he says to her, ask for me, ask for me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And then with her mother in her ear, she says, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king says his mistake. He shouldn't have promised. Now, he knows he should repent of his rash promise. He should fear God and refuse her request. But he fears his guests, and he does what she asks. He sends his executioner, who collects John's head and gives it to the king's niece, who gives it to her mother. Now, at any other feast, you see food in abundance on platters. But at this feast, there's only one platter, and it holds the head of a righteous and holy man. He kind of, what a face and what a king. What an obviously unrighteous king. Intrigued and entertained as John preached repentance. But he refused to treat God as God. He cared more about the opinions of others than he cared about the opinion of God. King Herod is obviously unconsciously unrighteous and unrepentant. Verse 30, the 12 report back. Uh, people are still coming and going. I guess they're coming for healing and going. But the, the, the disciples, they, they don't have any time to eat. So Jesus takes them with him to rest in a wilderness place. They leave by boat. But the crowd sees where they're going. And the crowd, the crowd follow. By the time the weary disciples get to land, they're already there with even more people from the surrounding villages. Jesus isn't fed up with the pressure, though. Verse 34, he has compassion on them. He's concerned for them. He has compassion because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They're subjects 
without a king. People without a leader. Now, ancient Israel, they needed Joshua as successor to Moses so that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. The Lord replaced King Saul with King David, saying, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. The prophet warned King Ahab that he would die in battle when he said Israel would soon be scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. King Herod's face highlighted how hopelessly unfit he was to rule. Jesus sees this crowd as subjects without a king. And he has compassion on them. He shepherds them. End of verse 34, he taught. At the end of the day, in that wilderness place, they have as much chance of finding food as Israel did when God was bringing them from Egypt to the promised land. There's no food in sight. Now, now back then, in the prom- when they were Egypt were between, sorry, Israel were between Egypt and the promised land, the Lord God miraculously provided manna in those desolate places for the great multitude. The great multitude who followed him in the wilderness. King King David celebrated that he was shepherding Israel, but he celebrated that the Lord was really the shepherd when he said that, that those famous lines, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Look at verse 39. The Lord Jesus commands his people to sit on the green grass. The Lord Jesus miraculously provides food in a desolate place for a great crowd who follow him. With five loaves, two fish, he feeds them until they have had so much that they say no more. And after 5,000 men, plus all the women and children who are there, have eaten their fill, there are 12 huge baskets of leftovers. Jesus is the king his people need. He's the shepherd who has compassion on his sheep. The Lord Jesus is their shepherd, and they shall not be in wants. Verse 45, Jesus sent his disciples ahead by boat. He goes up a mountain to pray, and as the sun sets, he sees them struggling against the wind. Now, nine hours later, that's fourth watch, um, the, the, the fourth quarter of the night. Nine hours later, they're struggling against the wind, and Jesus comes walking on the sea. He's about to walk past because, well, I guess they're safe. But they see him, and they think it's a ghost. They cried in fear. Immediately, Jesus reassures them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he steps into the boat, and the wind stops. And the disciples are utterly astounded. I kind of expect them to be astounded, but Mark... Mark thinks it's worth explaining here why, they, why they're astounded. Verse 52, they're utterly astounded because they don't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. See, we read Mark, and we see things the disciples didn't see and understand at the time. Because Mark has set us up to see and understand what's going on. He's highlighted things for us. He let us in on the secret before he even started. But they haven't yet seen what Mark is helping us to see. They don't see what Jesus feeding thousands with a few loaves points to. They don't see that it points to him as the Lord miraculously providing for his people. 
They don't yet understand who he is because their hearts are hardened. Let's move on. 53, 56 summarize uh, what happened in around Galilee after they landed. Um, more crowds, more sick brought, more sick healed. Then chapter 7, Pharisees and heavyweight scribes from Jerusalem find Jesus. Uh, this time their issue with Jesus is skin deep cleanness. They think they're cleaner than clean and they're outraged when they see Jesus' disciples not using the ceremonial hand sanitizer. Everywhere they go, it's available, but they're not using it. The Pharisees, they always sanitized. The Jews, they always sanitized. They did what the traditions of the, of the elders instructed. They had token amounts of water to clean physically clean cups and well, hands and cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. They did all manner of ceremonial sanitizing that the Old Testament didn't require. But they they asked Jesus, verse 5, Why do your disciples not walk according to tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus basically winds up saying that their new rules dodge God's law. Their cherished traditions are unnecessary and dangerous. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them actors. That their true self is hidden. Not just hidden even from them. Verse 6, they're like the people centuries before. Verse 6, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They insist on the things that God does not insist on, and they dodge the things that God does insist on. And they become really, really good at it, verse 9. Basically, basically Jesus says, you do it beautifully. Which isn't a compliment when it's talking about how you dodge God's law, is it? God says, honor me this way. Men say, do this and you won't have to do that. And the Pharisees' hearts rejoice. Jesus illustrates verse 10. They have a way to give to God that undermines everything God said through Moses about honoring parents. Uh, They commit their cash to God and then feel perfectly righteous when they tell aging and needy parents that they can't help them. Their new rule makes God's law obsolete. On a whole range of issues, keeping their rules lets them break God's good and holy law with a clean conscience. I want to move on by also just... In discipleship groups, just as we chat around the place, it's worth thinking, are there rules, religious rules, or just things we say, everyone should do this, which then give us the thought that oh, it's okay to not keep God's law, to not do what God requires. Because they have rules, and, and their rules, their, con- their commitment to their rules let them break God's law with a clean conscience. Jesus presses his point home. Uh, he exposes their heart-deep uncleanness. They complained about the disciples eating uh, using, without using that ceremonial hand sanitizer. Jesus says it's just not worth worrying about. It's not worth worrying about what you, you're eating with, what, what, with your hands when you're eating. It's not actually worth worrying about what you're eating, whether the food is clean or unclean. What the food goes in, it, it comes out eventually. It's going in the toilet, so you don't need to worry about what you're eating. It doesn't harm your status with God. And Mark Mark clarifies that thus Jesus declared all foods clean. 
No need to worry your conscience about pork or prawns. Don't worry about what goes on your skin or what goes in your mouth. But verse 21, do see what's coming out of your heart. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The Pharisees, they just didn't see it. They didn't see their unrighteousness. They couldn't see because they were so busy keeping their rules that let them break God's good and holy law with a clean conscience. Their ceremonial hand sanitizing kept them feeling squeaky clean. Their new rules let them dodge God's law. So in their minds, they had nothing to repent of. In their minds, they had nothing to repent of. The next three stories unfold outside the primarily Jewish regions. Uh, in regions that pious Jews, like Pharisees, would have left doing that shaking the dust off their feet thing, saying we're, we're leaving now behind the people who aren't God's people. Uh, verse 24, Tyre and Sidon uh, are north and west beyond the boundary of Israel. And we'll be heading down to the Decapolis um, in, for the next couple of little sections. A Gentile woman uh, up in Tyre Sidon, uh, whose daughter had an unclean spirit, she comes to Jesus as she begs him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Jesus says, let the children be fed first. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she hears him. Abraham's descendants are the children, and she's one of the Gentile dogs. Jews did think of and refer to Gentiles as scavenger dogs, uh, the, the scavenger dogs, they eat the clean and unclean uh, alike, and the Gentiles eat the unclean and unclean alike. So they call them scavenger dogs, the Gentiles. But Jesus doesn't use that scavenger dog word. He says something closer to, not yet, let the children eat first and then the house dogs. She accepts what he said. She accepts what he said. There's a priority, it's Jews, then Gentiles. And she says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The house dogs, they're fed after the children leave the table. Yeah. But even while the children eat, the dogs under the table get to eat what's dropped. And we've just seen Pharisaic children (laughs) drop what Jesus offered them. And now we see Jesus give her a blessing which they have dropped. He gives the blessing to this ceremonially unclean woman and her daughter. The demon leaves. South and east over the other side of the Sea of Galilee is another mostly Gentile region, the Decapolis, ten towns. Jesus goes there. Uh, they bring a deaf man uh, who has a speech impediment. Jesus takes him aside. Uh, I think here he acts out what he's planning to do because the man's deaf, so the man knows what's going on. Then Jesus says, be opened, and it's so. The man hears and speaks. Jesus says, tell no one, but you kind of expect, as we're expecting by this stage in Mark, he says, tell no one, and then they go and tell as many people as they can. But look at what they say. 
their astonished words actually echo a couple of verses from Isaiah. Or Isaiah said, pointed to a time when the eyes of the blind would be opened, when the, the ears of the deaf unstopped, when the lame shall leap like a deer, when the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Here it is. In chapter 8, an enorm- another enormous crowd um, g- gathered in that Gentile region. They stay with Jesus for days and run out of food. It's almost a rerun of when he fed the 5,000 uh, 5, plus in the Jewish region. Jesus says to his disciples, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. The disciples say, there's nowhere to get bread. And then Jesus feeds the crowd until they've had enough to say no more. After 4,000 eat their fill, there are seven huge baskets of leftover. So they all leave, and then they, Jesus leaves with his disciples by boat. Then, other side, back away from the Jews, back to seeing the Pharisees. They find Jesus, they argue, they want a sign from heaven. They're thinking, and we're thinking, why on earth do they want to see a sign? We've almost only seen signs chapter after chapter. We even saw Pharisees see Jesus heal in the room when Jesus healed a paralyzed hand. But now they want, they demand a sign. Perhaps they want God to open the clouds of heaven and say, this is my son. Jesus sighs. Their problem isn't lack of evidence. They've seen enough. It's not that no sign is given. It's that actually they've seen so many signs. Jesus and his disciples get back in a boat. Uh, they move on. But it becomes obvious that the disciples still don't understand where the signs point either. Uh, verses 14 to 16, uh, it's almost comical, I reckon. Uh, Twelve of them in a boat with the bloke who just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and not long before had fed 5,000 plus with five loaves. And they have one loaf. Jesus says to them, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Watch out for the the starter dough, the old dough with yeast in it, which is kneaded in uh, into the water to to make, and sorry, in with water and flour will will make the bread rise. They watch on, they latch on, they they grab on to the the leaven, the the starter dough word, and they start arguing like we don't have enough, well, cooked dough, (laughs) we don't have enough bread. And with Jesus in the boat, like one loaf is enough to feed 500 people, well, and more than 500 people. And there are only 13 or so. Jesus asks the obvious question. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having ear, eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Those are the words he used from Isaiah when he's talking about parables. He's warning them to make sure they listen carefully and aren't among those who listen but don't hear, who harden their hearts. Then Jesus asks, do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They say 12. Uh, And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They say seven. And Jesus says, do you 
not yet understand. Not yet. He expects them to eventually, but they don't yet. Now, that conversation is designed to send us back and get us thinking. It's designed to send us back and get us thinking about, what's this with the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Uh, what's, go- what's going on with the loaves? How does it relate back to what Jesus said about the lo- them not understanding the loaves, so not, re- not being utterly astounded about him walking in water, stopping the storm? So let's back to think again about those things. So let's start with 11. That, that started, oh, that, that changes the whole batch, that makes it all rise. And Jesus is using it in a way that you don't want it all to rise. You don't want it all to be like the Pharisees. You don't want it all to be like the Herodians. It's a picture of change for the worse. What do the disciples need to look out for? Well, one thing actually about both of them is that they both misread the signs. Even before he, he showed us his first, the, Jesus' first miracle, Mark had told us who he is convinced Jesus is. Mark's helped us see what Jesus' mighty works point to. He, he keeps showing us that Jesus does what God alone does. Everything from commanding nature to overpowering demons. Everything from, uh, from healing the sick to giving forgiveness. Jesus does what God alone does. And we've just seen it again. But Herod didn't see. And the Pharisees didn't see. And the disciples don't yet see. Jesus warns them and us to be careful how we read the signs, how to be careful how we read the implications of what Jesus did. He's saying, don't let, don't let false beliefs survive that collision with the truth. You want to break the false beliefs and find what's true. Find the truth of who Jesus is. The Pharisees and Herod both misread the signs. But Mark's also shown us that they're both unrepentant. Not a very different type of unrepentance. Uh, Herod didn't repent because he didn't want to. Obviously, consciously unrighteous, he chose not to repent. The Pharisees are different. They thought they had nothing to repent of. So they didn't. Skin deep, clean, heart deep, unrighteous. But in the end, just as unrepentant as Herod. Why does unbelief survive collision with the truth? Essentially because it wants to. Herod, so he can live on in unrighteousness. Pharisees, so they can live on with skin-deep righteousness. Jesus Jesus is saying, beware the false guides. Beware the false guides who tell you that you're better off without God. You decide what you do with your life. Beware the false guides who tell you it's all about God and here are the rules that will keep you right with him. Meanwhile, dodging God's law. Both attitudes are empty, both seductive in their own ways. Both spread when they have an opportunity. So Jesus says, watch out. Watch your own heart. Watch one another's hearts. Keep it in mind as you talk with friends. Whether the promise is a good life now or whether the promise is a welcome in God's people, if it's a step away from Jesus, 
is to step away from the truth. The promise won't deliver. So Jesus says, watch out. Follow him. Run to him. And this passage is great. We, we see him feed his followers in the wilderness. And it gives us a glimpse of how good it is to be among his people. Jesus is the king who shepherds his people. They will not be in want. He is the Lord God who provides for his people. He does it because he cares. And he's almighty so he can do it. He is able to care. So I guess looking back to some extent, it's no surprise that he's able to walk on waters that he made. That when his disciples fear him, he's able to step in and care for them. When Jesus asks his disciples here, do you not yet understand? It's clear they don't yet. They're on the edge. Actually, next week is when we start to see their eyes opening. But the push of this passage for us is make sure you understand. Watch out for false guides. Read the signs, see where they point. Read what Jesus did, see where they point. See what Jesus' miracles say about him. I look to Jesus as your shepherd And he will be your shepherd. You'll know him as the one who has compassion on you and cares for you. Now part of that care is him showing you how deep your unrighteousness goes. He'll show you that you are a sinner who deserves God's judgment. But don't hide from that truth. Don't hide from that truth because it's a truth spoken by the one who came to call sinners to repentance. Who accepts and forgives sinners. Who came to give his life as a ransom. He came to forgive those who come to him in trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth concerning your son. Father, please do... Help us to be on guard, to recognize false guides, false guides that that suggest going off into rebellion and disobedience as the good way, or false guides who say, here is the path which will lead to being accepted by you, which doesn't involve Jesus. Father, please do... Keep us wary of those false guides. Father, please keep us looking to your Son, seeing him as we meet him in the Scriptures, seeing him as you reveal him to us, seeing where the truth about what he said and did points. Father, we ask that we we continually look to Jesus as our shepherd as the one who laid his life down for his shape, the one who gave his life as a ransom, the one who rules his people well. Father, as we look to him, please keep us caring for one another and loving those around us uh, who hear these competing messages. In the Lord Jesus, amen.